I want you to imagine a few different scenarios, all of which I think are, are not uncommon. Suppose you're counseling a friend, uh, this woman comes to you and says, I've really been struggling in my walk with the Lord and I've been discouraged and somewhat despondent, could we meet together? And so you meet and you meet one time over coffee and you try to share some Bible verses and you say, the Lord's mercies are new every morning, great is His faithfulness, you need to trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. And then you meet a second time and she seems just as discouraged and and confused as the first time, except this second time you notice that she's sort of fumbling with her wrists, and as you look more closely, you see that there are, there are cut marks. You ask her, and she says for the past six months she's had these self-destructive tendencies cutting her wrist. You tell her again to, to trust in the Lord. And you meet a third time, and she, she seems just as discouraged and confused, and this time she says, there's something else that I didn't tell you and I need to, I haven't told anyone, but I, I have an eating disorder. And I go and I throw up after I eat. You say, I was wondering why you were looking so terribly thin, and you try to express some comfort and hope and tell her that God has a wonderful plan for her life. You meet a fourth time and she seems to have just as many questions and issues and finally you say to her, look, I love you as a friend but I, I don't have anything to say to you that can help you in this situation. I know some Bible verses but I don't think the Bible really can help you in problems that are this serious and I think you ought to go see a professional and I'll pray for you. Imagine a second scenario that you uh, graduated from school a few years ago and you're in your 20s and you're not sure what to do in life and so you say, God, would you, would you help me to know your will for my life? Would you tell me if I'm supposed to take this job or I'm supposed to uh, live here or I'm supposed to continue schooling? I don't know, God, and I know you have a plan and I want to be obedient, so would you just tell me? And you keep waiting for an impression, you keep looking for a sign, you keep hoping for a dream. You're, you're, you're eating tacos every night. You're hoping for some dream or something, some food-related vision or something to come to you and nothing. And you say, Lord, I, how am I going to obey you unless you tell me? Here's another scenario. You go to a church, and suppose it's a church, that, and the preacher is very in, he's, he's really into justice issues. And so he tells you, look, if you're a Christian and you're serious about justice, you will drive a hybrid. And if you're serious about justice, you need to downsize, and you can't have a house more than uh, 2,000 square feet, and you have to drink fair trade coffee. If you're a real Christian, you'll do these things. Or maybe it's a different kind of church. Maybe the pastor is really attuned to worldliness, and he says, look, if you're a good Christian, if you're a serious Christian, you'll get rid of your TVs. You'll never go see a movie again. There's nothing but trash coming out of Hollywood, and you need to get rid of your TVs. That's what Jesus would have you do. I'll give you a fourth, final scenario. Suppose you're in college, and you're talking with your friends, and you're all Christians, and you go to church from time to time, but as you get talking about how you live your life, you realize you're all sexually active in some way, and you decide together that, you know what, 
you know what the Bible says, but these standards aren't really relevant anymore. They aren't realistic. Maybe these worked uh, when people would get married at 14 or 15 or something, but, you know, you're still waiting, and why would God give you these desires? Why would He give you something so enjoyable if He didn't mean for you to act upon them? You say, well, I know what the God's, God says here in His Word, but I don't think this is for us. In each of those examples, the same truth is being threatened. It is the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. We've been doing a series on the doctrine of Scripture, and in particular the past several weeks looking at the four attributes of Scripture. You can remember them with the acronym SCAN. S stands for sufficiency. C, clarity. A, authority. N, necessity. We're doing it out of order, so we're ending with sufficiency. Scripture is enough to make us responsible for carrying out our present responsibilities to God. That's what John Frame says to define sufficiency. It means there are no excuses. It means we need nothing else than what we have in God's Word to be obedient to Him. And so do you see how each of those examples I just gave undermine the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture? And the first one with the counseling, while it's true that there are people who have expertise and skill to help with certain problems, what's assumed there is that the Bible cannot help us with real, real serious problems. If you need a verse to just tell you to be joyful or something, that's fine. But if you've got real problems, the Bible can't help you. That undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. Or the, the man who's wondering what is God's will for his life and he is expecting God to give him a sign, that too undermines the sufficiency of Scripture because it says, I need something other than the Bible if I'm to be obedient to God. This isn't telling me enough. I need some kind of vision to tell me where I should live and what I should do. Or the church where you got the pastor who's telling you what you should do. That undermines the sufficiency of Scripture if you add to it. So you want a safeguard, so you say, if you're a good Christian, you won't own a TV. If you're a good Christian, you'll drive this kind of car. Now, I know in this town it would be a GM, obviously, but, you know, no, you can't just say that. You can't just say you, you drive this kind of car. You're, you're adding to it. You're saying more than Scripture says. Or the last example, friends saying, you know what, the Bible standards for sexual purity are not relevant anymore. They're not realistic in our modern age. You're removing from Scripture. You're saying it's no longer perfect and complete in every respect, but there's something lacking. When, we, when you think about the attributes of Scripture, it's easy to think, well, authority, that's, that's kind of maybe the problem that liberals have, liberal Christians. Ah, we don't believe in the authority of the Bible. Or clarity, you think that's the postmodern problem. People say, well, the Bible's not clear. I can't really understand it. It doesn't have a meaning. And necessity, you think, well, maybe that's the non-Christian. Those are the people who say, I don't even need the Bible. Well, if one of them is the problem in particular for evangelical, rank-and-file Christians, it is the sufficiency of Scripture. It is easily forgotten and ignored. Do you believe that the Bible is enough for you to know God and to be saved, that the Bible is enough for you to live a life pleasing to God, 
that the Bible is perfect and complete, giving us all we need to know about Christ and salvation and godliness, and you cannot add anything to it, nor shall you subtract anything from it. That is the sufficiency of Scripture. I dare say that churches all around the country are always, there's got to be something else, right? There's got to be something more. We can't just build a ministry on the Word of God. I can't expect the Word of God to really speak into the deepest places of my life. I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. The connection with this passage and the sufficiency of Scripture may not be immediately obvious, but if you're willing to think carefully for some moments, hopefully you'll see it. Hebrews chapter 1, this is page 1001 in the Blue Bibles. You want to have your Bibles open so you can follow along. Hebrews comes right after Philemon. Lucky Philemon, he got on the 1,000th page of these Blue Bibles. And I bet Paul was just writing to Philemon and said, you know what, this is page 1,000, I'm not going to write anymore. We're just going to end right on this, just one pager. And so we get to Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here's the big idea in this paragraph, and it's the big idea in the whole book of Hebrews. In the Son, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, in the Son, we have the fullness and finality of God's redemption and revelation. In the Son, we see the fullness and the finality of God's redemption and revelation. I want you to look at these verses. There are four contrasts going on here. First, there is a contrast of eras. So, verse 1 says, long ago, okay, that, that's the first era. There's a long ago category. And then, verse 2, but in these last days. So, long ago versus in these last days. That may be a strange phrase to you. You may hear last days and you think, oh, the end of the world and maybe uh, the oil prices are spiking and something's going on in the Middle East. But the phrase last days does not refer to the impending doom of the cosmos. It refers to this age of the Spirit ushered in by the work of Christ. At Pentecost, in Acts 2, Peter preaches a sermon and he says clearly that with the coming of the Spirit, we are in these last days. Not last because next week's going to be the end of the world, but last because there is no 
act of redemption left to be accomplished before the end. All that is needed for our redemption has been accomplished. The death and resurrection of Jesus ushered us into a different age, a different epoch, a different era. So we're in now these last days. That's the first contrast. Long ago, these last days. The second contrast has to do with the recipients of this word. He says, long ago, God spoke to our fathers, so meaning the patriarchs, our ancestors, just our people, not just men, but our fathers, our, our people. In these last days, verse 2, He has spoken to us. So, long ago, spoke to our fathers. Now, in these last days, He's speaking to us, those people present right here. Third contrast has to do with the agents. So, long ago, He spoke to our fathers. How? By the prophets. So, the named prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Malachi, also those people who fulfilled the prophetic role like Abraham or Moses, also the prophetic writings, really the whole Scriptures. God spoke to us, and this was, this was the quintessential way. He spoke by prophets who came and gave a word from the Lord long ago. That's how He did it. Now, here's the contrast. In these last days, He has spoken to us, how? By His Son. By His Son. Now, that doesn't just mean that God spoke when Jesus opened His mouth and that was God's Word to us. That's true. But He also spoke by His Son in the Son's very presence and ministry. So, in the Son, we see God revealed. In the accomplishment of the Son on the cross, we see the way of salvation revealed. So, don't just think He spoke by the Son, yet yeah, Jesus spoke words. That's only part of it. He speaks by His Son to reveal the character of God in the Son and the way of salvation in the Son. And here's the fourth contrast. So, we have a different era, different recipients, different agents, and different ways. You see verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Polymeros and polytropos are the Greek words. Poly meaning much or many, like polyglot, polygon, poly want a cracker. That's a different poly, but poly. Polymeros, here translated many times, could be translated many pieces, many parts. The, God spoke in, in piecemeal. It came at parts, different times. And in many ways, He spoke by uh, a donkey. He wrote on a wall. He gave visions, dreams, voices, a burning bush, many ways. And the contrast here that's implied is that in these last days, He has spoken to us in this singular way, by His Son. So that if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how to be right with God, there is one way. It is through the Son. That is the way in which God has spoken and is speaking to His people. Now, all of this is driving to this point I said at the beginning, that Christ 
is the fullness and the finality of God's redemption and revelation. Now, look, starting at verse 2, following these contrasts, there are a series of affirmations about Christ, which again are driving home this point about the finality and the fullness of the Son. So I want you to look, there are seven affirmations. Why seven? Because it's the Bible. So there's often seven. Seven affirmations. First, we'll go through these real quickly. You see in verse 2, it says, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So Christ is the heir of all things. Isn't it interesting? He starts with the ending. The very first characteristic is the one that comes at the end, that he is the heir to inherit all things. This is an allusion to Psalm 2. In fact, all these affirmations are, are pretty much drawn from Psalm 2 or Psalm 110. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's a prophecy. And God says to the Messiah, ask of me and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance. The nations. So think about that. When you do mission work, you go out on missions, you send people, you give money, our church raises up missionaries. Mission work is bringing to Christ what is rightfully His, the nations. He is the heir of all things. They belong to Him. And then He is the creator of all things. You see that in verse 2 at the end? Now, you may say, well, where, where does it say Jesus was creation. Doesn't it just say God spoke and then the world came into existence? Well, yes, He spoke by His Word. And that Word, that self-revelation, that self-declaration, that wisdom, that Word made flesh in the Son of God. He created all things. Look at the end of verse, uh, middle of verse 3. He upholds all things. So He's the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. Is your Christ small? Because this Christ is not small. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. I cannot uphold the obedience of my children with the word of my power. Come! Nothing. Suddenly, suddenly they don't understand English. No comprendo, daddy-o. They don't even know. What? They don't come. I, my word, but, but Christ's word is, is holding together the nucleus, the cell. It's is, is holding together how protons and electrons keep their charge, keeping compounds together, keeping the force of gravity constant, that these steel beams would maintain their rigidity and not fall in on us is because Jesus wills them to be so. Stars, planets, galaxies, all in their place because Christ upholds them by the word of His power. It's not a small Christ. And He is the revelation of God. That's the fourth thing. He's the heir of all things, creator, sustainer, and He reveals. You see verse 3, He's the radiance of the glory of God, not merely the reflection. See, the moon reflects the light of the sun, but it, it's, just, it's just bouncing off. It's, just, it's another light. But 
This is not merely a reflection, but the radiance. Christ is another source of light, equal with the Father, in fact, showing forth the same glory of God, the representation. You see the word, the exact imprint. It's, it's the word for a, an impression or a stamp. He is the embodiment of God, God as He really is. Fifth, He says He made purification for sins. He took away our sin and our guilt. Sixth, it says after that, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want to teach you something maybe you, you didn't know before, think of before. <clears throat> when you talk about the gospel, about the ministry of Christ, you, you may say, well, it's the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's true. Maybe if you have a few more categories, you say it's the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. There's actually seven, always seven. There's, there's seven things you can say. The birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation, and then here's a term that we probably don't use very often, the session of Christ. I say the session. Jesus and the angels got together and they had a session and they had a meeting. Let's sing a song about that. No, session is, is a Latin word meaning to be seated. Birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and then the end of Christ's work that He accomplished is that He sat down. You say, well, what's so exciting about Christ taking a seat? Because you do not sit down unless your work is completed. We confess it in the Apostles' Creed. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is a king. It's like Psalm 110 says, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. You sit down when your work has been completed. What, what, Mom, mom, moms and dads are sometimes different like this because dad comes in, and what does he do? Comes back from work, opens the door, and looks for that, for his chair, and what does he do? He, he sits down. Why? Because dad figures, work is done. Now, when does mom sit down? Heaven. <laughs> no, Ma, mom sits down you know, after dinner and clean up and the kids are in bed and homework's done, everything, because she knows if she sits down before that, she might not get up. And so she then, then finally light and she sits down and it's good to sit because it means the work is finally done. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10 makes this point that the high priest was standing day after day to administer sacrifices, standing, always standing, because another sacrifice, but then Christ came, and he, did his, he sacrificed His body once for all, and it said that unlike all the other high priests, then Christ sat down. The session of Christ. And then we see, finally, verse 4, He has become much superior to angels superior to these messengers, given a superior title, 
The angels were his, his messengers to do his bidding, but now there is no word greater than this gospel word that has come. In fact, if you look at chapter 2, you see that the message of the gospel was attended by witnesses, by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit, verse 4, far greater than the angelic hosts who attended the giving of the law because Christ has superseded the law. The Son is superior to all persons, beings, institutions, rituals that have come before. And this is the theme throughout Hebrews. We could go through chapter by chapter. Chapter 1 and 2, He's superior to angels. You can go to chapter 3, He's superior to Moses. Chapter 4, He's superior to Joshua. Chapter 5, He's superior to Aaron. Chapter 6, He's superior to Abraham. Chapter 7, He's greater than Melchizedek. Chapter 8, he supersedes the Old Covenant. Chapter 9, he supersedes the tabernacle. Chapter 10, he is the great high priest. Chapter 11, he gives us better promises. Chapter 12, he gives us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Chapter 13, he leads us to a city whose foundation and builder is God. Because Christ is superior. In the Son, we see the fullness of and the finality of God's redemption and God's revelation. Now, what does any of this have to do with the sufficiency of Scripture? Think about those two words, fullness and finality. Fullness means everything was pointing to Christ. All the prophets, all the rituals, all the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the ark, it's all pointing to Christ. Finality means they are all completed in Christ. They're all pointing to Him. They're all completed in Him. I think we understand the fullness. We tend to forget the finality that God in His Son has won this great salvation, dying for our sins, being raised from the dead, ascending into heaven, reigning on high so that He can say, it is finished. We need no other prophet like Muhammad. There can be no further priest to atone for our sins. We have no other king. The fullness and the finality. And then I wanted you to think about these other two words, redemption and revelation. People like to separate those two. So you have some Christians who say, well, I, I'm about the word capital W, and you're about the word little w, kind of. I'm about Jesus, you're about the Bible. You got Jesus Christians, you got Bible Christians. Well, I, I want to be a Jesus Christian. Or you're about Scripture and I'm about the Spirit. Or the, the Bible might tell you how to be saved, but Jesus actually saves you. And there's this, there's this pulling apart of redemption and revelation. We must not do that. Redemption is always also a revelation. Here's what I mean. The exodus. That's the event of redemption uh, bar none in the Old Testament. But it also, not only did God save His people, set them free, bring them out of Egypt, but it revealed something. It revealed that God is sovereign and He hardened Pharaoh's heart. It revealed that God is merciful, that God is slow to anger, that God is powerful and mighty to save. It revealed something. Every act of redemption reveals something about God. And conversely, every 
speech of revelation is also meant to redeem. It's not as if the prophets were just giving a lecture. All right, welcome to Malachi's school for the prophets. Charlie Brown style. Actually calling people to something, not just, I want you to have information, but I'm calling you to repent, to return, to believe. Every act of revelation was meant also to be an act of redemption. Redemption reveals and revelation redeems, and Christ is both. He is God's full and final act of redemption for fallen sinners and God's full and final revelation of Himself. If we say His revelation is not complete, we must also say His redemption is somehow incomplete. John Frame says, nothing can be added to His redemptive work and nothing can be added to the revelation of that redemptive work. So then, are we saying that God does not speak? I'm talking about finality and these last days He's spoken by His Son and it's finished. So am I saying that God does not speak? Not at all. But we must pay attention how God speaks in these last days. He has decisively spoken in His Son and has shown us all we need to know, believe, and do so that there is nothing more to say, and yet God keeps speaking through what He has already said. God continues to speak through the Son by speaking through the revelation of the Son in the Scriptures. See, when it says in Hebrews 1, or in Hebrews 1 verse 2, in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus the Son was not on earth anymore. He had ascended into heaven. He wasn't around to come and give a sermon to this church. But God had spoken by His Son to these people, most of whom probably never met Jesus in person. God had spoken to them through this word, this revelation, first in the Gospels about Christ, and then in the rest of the New Testament, inspired by the Spirit to unpack the meaning of Christ. We must see this connection. Let me show you this in two verses. If you just flip the page to Hebrews 4, verse 12. Here's how Hebrews understands God speaking. He has spoken through His Son, and how does He do it? He does it through this revelation of the Son. Verse 12, for the Word of God is living and active. How many times have I heard people say, well, you, you, you know, Bible Christians, conservative Christians, you have a dead letter on a page, just words, just ink spots. I want, I want something that's alive. This is alive. If it's not alive to you, it's because you're dead. Because this word is alive. And look at here in chapter 3, verse 7. The writer is quoting from Psalm 95, part of the Old Testament, and look at how he quotes. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, as the Holy Spirit says, you turn to any page in your Bible and you can say, here's what the Spirit says. You say, I want to be a Spirit Christian. I want to hear what the Spirit says to me. Open your Bible. 
He said, I quote from the Old Testament. I say, here's what the Spirit says. This is what God is saying. So in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, and that word about His Son concerning His Son from His Son is captured here in the writings of Holy Scripture. So one theologian says, the Holy Spirit no longer reveals any new doctrines, but takes everything from Christ. In Christ, God's revelation has been completed. Because the Holy Spirit, you must remember, is the Spirit of Christ. And His work is to apply the blessings of Christ, glorify the person of Christ, and explain all that God has accomplished in Christ. When Jesus said that the Spirit will come to lead you into all truth, He didn't mean He'll you know, tell you who you should go on a date with. He will lead you into all the truth about me. He will reveal my glory to you. So let me summarize this, see if you can put these pieces together, and then we'll finish with some application. Jesus is superior to angels and all prophets and all rituals because He is God's full and final revelation. Though He has spoken in many ways in the past, in these last days God has spoken to us in this singular way by His Son. And He speaks through His Son by the revelation of His redeeming work. And we find the revelation of that redeeming work first in the Gospels and then unpacked by the Spirit through the apostles in the rest of the New Testament. Therefore, Scripture is enough because Christ is enough. You see, they stand or fall together. The Son's redemption and the Son's revelation must both be insufficient or both be sufficient. And they are both sufficient. They are all that is necessary such that there is nothing more to be done and nothing more to be known for our salvation and for our Christian walk other than what we see and can know about Christ in this book. Scripture is sufficient. It's all we need for life and godliness. Now, not all you need to, you know, replace the lug nuts on your car or change your blinker fluid or something, but uh, you do have blinker fluid, right? But, but it's all you need to be saved and to live a godly Christian life. Now, why does any of this matter? Let, let me finish with giving you four practical things you can do to honor the sufficiency of Scripture in your life. Four things to honor the sufficiency of Scripture in your life. Number one, keep tradition in its place. Keep tradition in its place. Now, when I say that, I am saying tradition has a place. Often Protestants, we think, tradition doesn't have a place. I don't, we don't have any traditions, right? We do VBS every time this year, and then everyone gets a jelly bean, and we don't have any traditions. <laughs> tradition has a place. In fact, I think we ought to be biased in favor of tradition. Now, most Americans say, well, a lot of people long ago used to think that way, so it's probably wrong. I think the Bible would have us say, well, if a lot of Christians in a lot of places and a lot of times have thought that way, then I'd probably give them the benefit of the doubt. 
the tradition has a place. We ought to pay attention. How have Christians worshipped before? You just start a church and you just say, well, we're just making it up. Isn't there some wisdom from Christians that have gone before? Pay attention to the creeds and confessions of the church. So tradition has a place, but it is not in the place. Every tradition must be tested according to the Word of God. Even our confessions, even the way we do things, must be tested according to God's Word. See, the role of tradition was, was and continues to be the single biggest source of division between Protestants and Catholics. And I think both sides would agree to this. That in the Catholic understanding, some parts of the Bible need to be augmented with the tradition of the church so that the source of revelation is both the Word of God and authoritative tradition. And when you come to the doctrines that Protestants and Catholics don't agree on, it, it, it all comes down to that tradition. How do you get the doctrine of purgatory? Or uh, the Immaculate Conception. Now, that's not when Franco Harris caught the pat. That's the Immaculate Reception. This is the Immaculate Conception, which doesn't refer to Jesus' birth, but refers to Mary's birth without sin. How do you get all this stuff about Mary being a, a, a co-redeemer or a co-mediator? Or the doctrine of papal infallibility? These come from later church traditions. And Protestants, rightly so, have affirmed the doctrine of sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Now, that doesn't mean that we say, all I need is a Bible, and I don't need to read a commentary, I don't need to read anything else, it's just me and my Bible. No, we learn from people. We stand on the, the shoulders of giants who have gone before. What it means is that there is no final authority other than the Scripture, that the Bible gets the last word, even against our precious traditions. It means nothing is needed in addition to Scripture to know God and believe what is true and do what is right. Think of the Pharisees. They were the ones that Jesus was always chastising because they wanted to elevate their traditions above the commandments of God. They had commandments of men above the commandments of God. Pharisees were the very first people who said, well, we've never done it that way before. So keep tradition in its place. Second, trust the Word of God to be relevant. Trust the Word of God to be relevant. I think a lot of us, and boy, I can be guilty of this, come to my Bible, have my quiet time, I think, I've got to get through this, and I, I have a lot of things going on in my life, a lot of things to do today, and this is just, i just got to get it done. And how often we come to the Word and we think, i got real problems, i got real issues, and reading a couple chapters in Philippians, let alone a couple chapters in Ezekiel, is not going to tell me anything I really need to know. Shame on us. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, every little bit of it, even Philemon, even Ezekiel. It's all profitable for us, for correction, reproof, for training, in righteousness. And part of the reason why the Word doesn't seem relevant is we have a very superficial understanding of it. And friends, we've got to be careful when we counsel people sometimes, we just kind of want to slap a Bible verse on their problem. And so someone comes and oh, they're suffering and they're struggling, you just say, Romans 8, 28, all things work. No, 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 all things. Repeat after me, 
all things. Okay, don't smile. All things work. And we may mean well, but what that does is instead of embracing people and helping, we kind of just put a hand up and say, nope, nope, go ahead. Bible verse, problem solved. The problem isn't the Bible verse. The problem isn't bringing up that truth. The problem is needing to be more nuanced and, and go deeper. So we want to read the Bible, first of all, in context. Then we want to read the Bible across its storyline. So you're not just pulling out something. You're saying, how does this fit in the storyline of creation, fall, redemption? How, do, how can you help put your problems? They're not just a verse, but your problems. What do they say about what does the fall say about your problems and why you feel this way and why you're wrestling with this and, and about creation? What does it mean you're created in God's image and, and redemption and, and consummation, the fact that we're not in heaven yet? How do, how do your problems, how can they be made sense of from this storyline? So you read across Scripture, you read down into your heart, so we're not just getting behavior change, okay? Stop that, all right? Thank you hey, we met last week, and I told you to stop doing that, and I'll tell you again, stop doing that, all right? See you next week. You're still doing it. No, well, you've got to get to the heart. Why is it you're angry all the time? You can't just say, stop being angry, stop being cynical, stop being judgmental. What, what, what's, what's going on? What are the, the ways in which you have pride at work that wants to elevate yourself? What are the ways you're, you have fear of man, you have the love of the praise of man? And you've got to read it up to the glory of God. So you read it in, you read it across, you read it down, you read it up. We come to the Bible and we say, God, i got a problem, I want you to fix my problem. God would rather have us come and say, all right, I've got a problem, and this is going to tell you a way that you can glorify God in the midst of your problem. Trust the Word of God to be relevant. Number three, do not add or subtract from this book. Let me show you something that I think is really cool, and so I know you will too, okay? It, would you turn to Deuteronomy, the beginning of your Bibles? Deuteronomy chapter 4, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We have to understand that the Bible is a covenantal book. A covenant is an agreement between God and His people, and covenants always had certain forms to them. So a covenant would give a history of the ruler working with the people and what he did to save them, then there'd be certain obligations and laws, and then there might be blessings if they obeyed and cursed. And then at the end of the covenant, there would be some kind of inscriptional curse that said, all right, now that the covenant has been established and it's been written down, it's been deposited, there's witnesses to it, now don't change it. That's the way covenants worked in the ancient world. So look at Deuteronomy 4 verse 2. Moses is re-giving the law and he says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Turn a few pages to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32. Same thing. 12:32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. That's what you did with the covenant. Here's the arrangement between us. We write it down. We deposit it. There are witnesses. 
And then we add this little part at the end, and nobody changes a thing. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. So covenants work. Now, go to the very end of the Bible. It's a Revelation 22, last book, last chapter, almost the last verse, verse 18. Deuteronomy, or Revelation 22, 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Same inscriptional curse. Because the New Testament is the documents of the new covenant. And what did Hebrews 2 say? But the new covenant came to us, and it was attested by signs and wonders. Those were the witnesses. And then it's, it's deposited to us, and it's given this final inscriptional curse, not just for the book of Revelation, but given Revelation's book place in the canon, this is for the whole new covenant revelation. Don't you change anything. And there are some Christians who want to add to the Bible. They say, look, God, I, I, I think I know what you're trying to say, but if you added a few extra things here, it would be a lot clearer. And if you, if you had said something about not having TVs, that would have really helped us. Or I know you don't want people to get drunk, but if, if you could also say not even to ever drink, that would also that would make it clearer, a little, little easier for us. So sometimes well-meaning Christians want to add things. And then other times, Christians want to subtract. They say, well, my experience tells me that this must be the case. Or our culture uh, won't allow for this understanding. How often have I heard people say, well, aren't we supposed to be reformed and always reforming? Yes, but don't miss the last part of that slogan, always reforming according to the Word of God. How many times in the past week did I hear somebody say, well, the Spirit wants to teach us new things? Well, the Spirit does teach us new things, but He never teaches us new things in addition to the Scripture. He reveals new things already in the Scriptures. He's not going beyond it. He's certainly not contradicting it. So we must never add to or subtract from this book. And then finally, so keep tradition in its place. Trust the Word of God to be relevant. Do not add or subtract. And finally, open your Bibles to hear the voice of God. Don't you want to hear from God? How do you hear from God? Just dig deep in yourself, spend some time meditating. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And the revelation of His Son is contained in this book, and He speaks. I was at our, our general synod last week, our denominational meetings. There's a number of encouraging things, a lot of discouraging things. We had to be in advisory groups. There's about 18 of us in a group. And our goal was both to talk about the homosexuality issue and to, to try to discern God's future for us and our vision and where we're going. 
And the first time we met, we were supposed to establish our norms. How do we want the group to operate? And we're supposed to listen to each other and not judge. And so I said, oh, okay. I said, I have a norm that I'd like to suggest. I'd like to suggest that we're searching for truth. Yes, we're respectful. Yes, we love each other. Yes, we're kind. But, but I hope that in this group we have our Bibles open together to see what the Word says about these things. And I don't know how the moderator meant it to come across. He was probably trying to stick to the instructions he had been given, but these were his exact words to us. We are not here to open our Bibles. So we're not here, no, we're not here to open our Bibles. We're here to listen to each other. And I thought, how sad that among so many there seemed to be a greater desire to listen to each other than to listen to God. At the, at the end of one of the evenings, there were a number of missionaries sharing, and there was a, a mission partner. I don't know who he was, but he was from Brazil. He talked a long time, but what he said was good, and he had a lot of humor. And he, he came to the very end of his talk, and he noticed in the room, and these were all over our meeting places, just dozens of them, these signs that said, discover, discover the future for the RCA. And it's a series of meetings they're having this fall all around the country to discover our future. And he looked at it and he, he said, I see that sign, discover your future. Interesting. He said, I just have two things to say. One, I hope you find it. And two, don't take too long. And then he sat down. Still not sure what he meant, but I think it made sense. Here we are, all gathering meetings upon meetings to discover and discern our future and hear what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit has spoken. The Son still speaks. Christ rules His church by His Word. And He speaks if we are willing to listen. Do you and I believe that the Scripture is sufficient? Do you believe that if we as a church are to open this book, we would find that God's message has not changed. His methods have not changed. The ministry of the gospel has not changed. Our mission priorities have not changed. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He still speaks. Do we believe that the Word is enough? We are so tempted to say, oh, God, you, you can't build a church on the Word, not today. God, you can't really help my family and what's going on and these problems in my life with the Word. There's got to be something else. Do you believe that the Word is enough? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book, for the fullness and the finality of the Son's redemption and revelation, which we have recorded to us revealed to us for our salvation in the pages of Scripture. Lord, forgive us for searching elsewhere. Forgive us for listening to so many other voices but Yours. We are confident that whatever suffering we may endure, 
whatever opposition we may face, even if the devil himself opposes us and the work of the gospel, we know that one little word shall fell him. Such is the power and authority clarity and sufficiency of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.